Good morning. Welcome again. We're in 1 Samuel chapter 14. We'll keep going from where Todd had read. Uh, After Jesus rose from the dead, he spent 40 days with his disciples, uh, basically having a long Bible study with them. Uh, And one of the things he kept teaching them, Luke tells us, is that everything in the Old Testament is all about him. Uh, The Bible is not ultimately about you. It's not about me. It's about Jesus. And so when we read the Old Testament, we should be looking for what it shows us about him. The first half that Todd read uh, showed us, uh, in many ways, how great Jonathan is, uh, and therefore some ways that Jesus is like him. Uh, this second half I'm going to read uh, shows us uh, a lot of continuing things going wrong with Saul. And so as we read it, I challenge you to be thinking already about what does this show me uh, about Jesus. However Saul is going sideways, what does it show me about how Jesus doesn't do that? 1 Samuel 14, starting at verse 24. And the men of Israel had been hard-pressed that day, so Saul had laid an oath on the people, saying, Cursed be the man who eats food until it's evening, and I am avenged on my enemies. So none of the people had tasted food. Now when all the people came to the forest, behold, there was honey on the ground. And when the people entered the forest, behold, the honey was dropping. But no one put his hand to his mouth, for the people feared the oath. But Jonathan had not heard his father charge the people with the oath, so he put out the tip of his staff that was in his hand and dipped it into the honeycomb and put his hand to his mouth, and his eyes became bright. Then one of the people said, Your father strictly charged the people with an oath, saying, Cursed be the man who eats food this day. And the people were faint. Then Jonathan said, My father has troubled the land. See how my eyes have become bright because I tasted a little of this honey. How much better if the people had eaten freely today of the spoil of their enemies that they found. For now the defeat among the Philistines has not been great. They struck down the Philistines that day from Michmash to Aijalon, and the people were very faint. The people pounced on the spoil and took sheep and oxen and calves and slaughtered them on the ground. And the people ate them with the blood. Then they told Saul, Behold, the people are sinning against the Lord by eating the blood. And he said, You have dealt treacherously. Roll a great stone to me here. And Saul said, Disperse yourselves among the people and say to them, Let every man bring his ox or his sheep and slaughter them here and eat. Do not sin against the Lord by eating with the blood. So every one of the people brought his ox with him that night and they slaughtered them there. And Saul built an altar to the Lord. It was the first altar that he built to the Lord. Then Saul said, Let's go down after the Philistines by night and plunder them until the morning light. Let us not leave a man of them. And they said, Do whatever seems good to you. But the priest said, Let us draw near to God here. And Saul inquired of God, Shall I go down after the Philistines? Will you give them into the hand of Israel? But he did not answer him that day. And Saul said, Come here, all you leaders of the people, and know and see how this sin has arisen today. For as the Lord lives who saves Israel, though it be in Jonathan my son, he shall surely die. But there was not a man among the people who answered him. Then he said to all Israel, You shall be on one side, and I and Jonathan my son will be on the other side. And the people said to Saul, Do what seems good to you. Therefore Saul said, O Lord God of Israel, why have you not answered your servant this day? If this guilt is in me or in Jonathan my son, O Lord God of Israel, give Urim. But if this guilt is in your people Israel, give Thummim. And Jonathan and Saul were taken, but the people escaped. Then Saul said, Cast the lot between me and my son Jonathan. And Jonathan was taken. Then Saul said to Jonathan, 
tell me what you've done. And Jonathan told him, I tasted a little honey with the tip of my staff that was in my hand. Here I am, I will die. And Saul said, God, do so more to me and more also. You shall surely die, Jonathan. Then the people said to Saul, Shall Jonathan die, who's worked this great salvation in Israel? Far from it. As the Lord lives, there shall not one hair of his head fall to the ground, for he has worked with God this day. So the people ransomed Jonathan, so that he did not die. Then Saul went up from pursuing the Philistines, and the Philistines went to their own place. When Saul had taken the kingship over Israel, he fought against all his enemies on every side, against Moab, against the Ammonites, against Edom, against the kings of Zobah, and against the Philistines. Wherever he turned, he routed them, and he did valiantly and struck the Amalekites and delivered Israel out of the hands of those who plundered them. Now the sons of Saul were Jonathan, Ishvi, and Malkishua, and the names of his two daughters were these. The name of the firstborn was Merab, and the name of the younger Michael. And the name of Saul's wife was Ahinoam, the daughter of Ahimehaz. And the name of the commander of his army was Abner, the son of Ner, Saul's uncle. Kish was the father of Saul, and Ner, the father of Abner, was the son of Abiel. There was hard fighting against the Philistines all the days of Saul. And when Saul saw any strong man or any valiant man, he attached him to himself. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we want to be like the blessed man who meditates on your law day and night, uh, the man who delights in your word. Help us to do that this morning as we try to understand this story from many thousands of years ago. Help us most of all to see Jesus and to worship him. We pray in his name. Amen. I probably owe all of you, uh, especially if you normally are here, I owe you a presumptive apology because at my house right now we're reading Lord of the Rings to our kids. And so for probably the next year or so, you are going to get an unusually high number of Lord of the Rings references. (laughs) And some of that, some of you are pretty irritated by that, but I'm not that sorry. Um, one of the big themes of Lord of the Rings is that great victories come through overlooked and unimportant people, especially through hobbits. Uh, If you've seen the movies or you've read the books, you know that the hobbits are a people who are small and homely and even laughable. No one really takes them that seriously. Our passage today continues to show us what we've been seeing for the last couple weeks. It shows us the decline of King Saul, mainly today by way of contrast with his son Jonathan. Jonathan understands uh, what Lord of the Rings is mainly about, that God can and does work through weakness. Verse 6 is the key to the whole chapter. Jonathan says, It may be that the Lord will work for us, for nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. Last week in chapter 13, we saw Saul anxiously watching his terrified soldiers dwindle before a battle with the mighty Philistines. And so last week we saw Saul take matters into his own hands and offer sacrifices that only the prophet Samuel was supposed to be offering. In many ways, Saul is a poster child for the modern world. He is a man of action. He does what feels right to him. He takes care of himself. He speaks and he lives his own truth. He thought that he knew better than God. He could not fathom that God might have actually wanted for him to have a smaller army. 
And so he disobeyed God. He thought that he could just kind of make it up as he went along based on what made sense to him, based on what felt right to him. And so Samuel told him last week at the end of chapter 13 that his kingdom was going to be given to another man, a man whom God now had his heart set upon. And we're not yet told who that's going to be. At this point in the story, as we start to see how great his son Jonathan is, you start to wonder, maybe the kingdom's going to pass to his son. For the first part of chapter 14, you see how righteous and how faithful he is and how unlike his father he is. And so that's the first half that we're going to look at, at Jonathan's faith. Jonathan's faith, his confidence that God can save. Last week, we heard that Jonathan had already defeated one garrison of the Philistines back in his hometown. And now we hear about a plan of his to attack another garrison of the Philistines. At the end of verse 1, you hear that he does not tell his dad about this, that he's just going to go and try this. And so you start to get hints that things are not going so well between Saul and Jonathan, this growing divide between them. Jonathan's making a courageous plan to defeat the Philistines, but in verse 2, you hear that Saul is lollygagging, uh, either in a pomegranate cave, or I think it probably means something more like a pomegranate tree. He's lollygagging under a pomegranate tree. Pomegranates were for rich people back then. And so this is probably an allusion for, uh, to Saul's status and to his affluence. You hear that uh, Saul is hanging around with a priest who's related to this guy named Ichabod. We heard about him a few chapters ago. He was from a corrupt family. He was born under humiliating circumstances. And his name means, where's the glory? And so it's a bit foreboding that Saul is hanging around with him. To underscore his incompetence, you also hear in verse 3, that nobody, not even Saul himself, realizes where Jonathan has gone, even though we heard last week that Saul and Jonathan are the only ones in the entire Israelite army who have swords. They've lost half of their weapons and nobody's noticed. Verse 6, Jonathan tells his friend, he says, let's go over to the garrison of these uncircumcised. It might be that the Lord will work for us, for nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. Jonathan understands what God has been trying to show Israel over and over and over again. He understands that God is the one who saves and rescues and helps and that he does not need us or our strength or our input to accomplish anything that he wants. God has shown this many times to Israel already in the story of Samuel. He showed it to them many times in the period of the judges right before Samuel. And of course, he showed it to them most importantly, at the exodus out of Egypt. Um, we talked about this during the Benoit girls' baptism, but um, if you know the story, you know that Israel finally gets out of Egypt. They are a ragtag bunch of slaves. They uh, have some gold that they got to take from the Egyptians. And right after they leave, they're backed up against the Red Sea with the mightiest military on the planet bearing down on them. There's no possible way for them to escape. They get really scared. They go to their leader, Moses, and they're terrified about it all. And he says, ah, don't worry about it. Uh, Exodus 14, 13, he says to them, he says, Fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. He says, the Lord will fight for you. You only have to be silent. God splits the sea as they walk through, and then he drowns the Egyptian army behind them. All they had to do was watch and walk, or in the case of little kids, get carried. Unlike Saul, Jonathan understands that this is who God is. God does not have to do 
what we want or what we expect. He says, it may be that the Lord will work for us. And so you can see that this isn't some blind name it and claim it word of faith kind of treatment of God. It's not him just making demands upon God and saying, well, I believe it and so therefore you have to do it. Uh, Jonathan knows that they might be defeated by the Philistines. He understands that there is real risk to following God. There is real risk to obeying God. Lots of Christians around the world today face that every single week as they go to church knowing that they could be killed or bombed. Risk is not an automatic exemption from obedience. But Jonathan also understands that God can and does work not only through impressive power, sometimes he does that, but also and especially that he works through laughable weakness, through hobbits. And so he and his buddy climb up to the fort. Um, I wouldn't recommend that you normally try to figure out God's will in the way that he does here. Uh, But the way Jonathan does it is he says, if the Philistines respond in a certain way, uh, then we'll take that as a sign that God wants us to do this. The Philistines see them clambering up the rocks there and they smugly taunt them, which ironically is the sign that Jonathan was looking for, uh, that they were doing what God wanted them to be doing. And so then look at verse 12. Jonathan says to his friend, Come up after me, for the Lord has given them into the hand of Israel. Uh, You notice there that Jonathan doesn't focus on himself. Uh, He doesn't take credit for what's about to happen. He realizes that it's a victory for God's people. He does not say, God has given them into the hand of Jonathan. Time to ratchet up some, some glory points for myself. It's only two guys, but they win a decisive victory. They kill 20 men between the two of them. God uses them to defeat this little garrison, but God also uses it to defeat the rest of the massive Philistine army that's all around the area. Uh, we read that there was a panic in the camp, in the field, and among all the people, and it became a very great panic. God uses this little victory of Jonathan to set off massive pandemonium among the entire army. In verse 16, Saul's watchmen notice what's happening across the way. Uh, Apparently, Saul is too busy bumming around with pomegranates to notice what's happening in the battle. Uh, They realize that Jonathan and his buddy are gone, and so Saul calls for the Ark of the Covenant, the Ark of God, uh, which was there with them. If you've been following along in the story of Samuel, this will set off a couple of alarm bells for you because already early on in the story, Israel tried to take the, covenant, the Ark of the Covenant with them into battle against the Philistines. That's back in chapter 4. Uh, they brought it as a kind of religious good luck charm uh, and it worked out horribly for them. Um, but in any case, Saul calls for it, probably as a way of at least trying to seek God's favor and to ask for his guidance on what to do. As we've been saying the last few weeks, Saul is a pretty complex and even sympathetic character. And so he's easy for us to relate to. He's really similar to us. He's not a cartoonish bad guy. Here he's at least trying to figure out what God wants. Uh, At some level, Saul is interested in God. But his interest in God is short-lived. In verse 19, he sees more and more of the chaos developing with the Philistines And he tells the priest at the ark, he says, well, never mind, Uh, stop doing that. Uh, Let's not worry anymore about figuring out what God wants. He dives right into the battle with his little swordless army and and they find that the Philistines are so confused that the Philistines are just attacking each other. Uh, And then we hear that the Israelite deserters are coming back into the battle also. God did not need Israel to have swords. He used the Philistines' own swords against them. Verse 23 The Lord saved Israel that day. 
God gave Israel a great victory through the littleness of Jonathan, just like he did at the exodus from Egypt and like he would do one day climactically through the littleness of Jesus. Jesus was an obscure craftsman. He was totally scorned by the elites of his society. He was humiliated at the end of his life with the shameful and miserable death on the cross with almost all his friends having abandoned him. But God was winning a great victory through Jesus on the cross. There on the cross, uh, which if you would have looked at it walking by that day outside of Jerusalem, you would have thought, here is one of society's greatest losers. Uh, But what was actually happening there was God winning a great victory. He was conquering our greatest and our most oppressive enemies. He was conquering sin. He was conquering the devil. He was even conquering death. Jesus demonstrated all this through his mighty resurrection from the dead a couple days later. Uh, Here's a question for us today. In what ways do we need to be reminded that nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few? In what ways do we need to be more like Jonathan? You might look at the state of the world right now uh, or the state of the church. Uh, You might look at your own lack of growth in holiness and in obedience to God, your continuing struggle with sin. You might look at um, all the scorn you're facing from colleagues at work Uh, all of the frustrations you're facing in parenting your children, uh, all the pain you're facing in a difficult marriage. You might look at your own mind and body and see them declining faster and faster toward the grave. You might look at some of those things and you might wonder, how could God be at work here? How could God do anything about this? How could God use such weak people such a weak church, to do something that sounds so great. You and we need to see and remember that there's nothing that can hinder the Lord from doing His work in His way, even if His way looks very different than the way that I would want Him to work or the way that the world expects Him to work. Nothing can hinder Him. That's Jonathan's faith. God can save, but now in the second half of the story, we see Saul's folly. Jonathan's faith, now Saul's folly. Saul thinks, I can save. Jonathan knew that God could save. In verse 24, uh, we now are getting a flashback uh, of something that's happened during this big battle we've just heard about. We're backtracking to get a little part of that story uh, with something that Saul was doing. In verse 24, we hear about how in the middle of this big battle, Um, Because the Israelites are getting really weary from chasing down all these terrified Philistines, Saul impulsively demands that nobody get to eat for the rest of the day. Apparently, because he was worried that they might get distracted with eating some of the spoils, and he thinks he knows better than they do what's better for them. But notice his goal. Look at verse 24. He says, Cursed be the man who eats food until it's evening, and I am avenged on my enemies. Jonathan won a real victory, and he said, God has given Israel victory. He didn't take credit for it. He didn't view it through the lens of his own goals and his own desires and his own interests. But Saul processes the whole thing in terms of himself. He says, until I'm avenged. No God, no Israel, no Jonathan, just Saul, the impressive man of action, living his truth, Not only impulsive, but also self-absorbed. 
in many ways, he's kind of acting like God. He thinks it's about him. And this ridiculous imposition leads to great harm. Nobody is eating except for Jonathan, who didn't get the memo. He eats some honey, and his strength returns. He's ready to kill more Philistines. And then the faint people around him say, Whoa, what are you doing? Didn't you hear? Did you hear what your dad said? And Jonathan says in verse 29, this is really interesting. Jonathan says, My father has troubled the land. How much better if the people had eaten freely of the spoil. Now the defeat is not going to be a great one. It's a good example of somebody in the Bible openly criticizing the abuse of power. The Bible does tell us to respect those whom God puts in authority over us, but that is very far from blindly and mindlessly supporting and doing whatever they say. Jonathan says, are you kidding me? This is so stupid. What was he thinking? He's made everything worse. Like many government leaders down through the ages and like many of us, I do this with parenting, coming up with crazy rules all of a sudden for my kids, Saul felt like he had to do something. And he made a foolish decision that really just made things worse. Saul's foolish decision made things worse by causing unnecessary harm to the people. But also we hear because it, caused, uh, it contributed to sin. It contributed to sin. You see that starting in verse 31. The people are so hungry that when the sun actually goes down and now they're freed from this oath that the king put on them, uh, they go kind of crazy. They start ravenously butchering animals that they're finding and just eating them all up with all of the blood, uh, which might have sounded a little weird to you. That was something in the Old Testament, especially that God told people not to do because blood signifies life and God wants people to be particularly sober about death and its relationship to sin. There's never a real excuse for disobeying God, but Saul's rash command certainly contributes to their sin. And so this again underscores his foolishness. But Saul does try to do something about it. He sets up a butchering station with a big rock so that the people can deal with the blood properly. And you hear in verse 35 that he builds his first altar to the Lord. You have to start somewhere, but we're supposed to be wondering why it's taken Saul so long to prioritize the worship of God. It's his first altar he's ever built, his first time he's ever thought, I'm going to really worship God. Again, Saul is not a totally black and white character. He's like all of us. At some level, he's sometimes trying to do the right thing. Like us, for the most part, he means well. But fundamentally, you see that he is not operating with God as his main frame of reference. He makes a bunch of plans for finishing the battle, and then the priest kind of taps him on the shoulder and says, hey, maybe we should ask God what he thinks about this. Uh, Maybe we should see if this is a good idea. Uh, But then when Saul does so, God doesn't answer him. And so you can see there's something very wrong morally and spiritually with Saul and through Saul, the people around him. You also, you see Saul causing harm. You see Saul contributing to sin. You also see Saul passing the buck. Like many insecure people fixated on themselves and how other people are thinking about them, like lots of insecure people, Saul is ironically pretty unself-aware. It's strange. Somebody who's thinking about themselves all the time, they're always worried about what people think about them. They can be very unself-aware. Like many leaders, 
through history, like many leaders in our world, Saul does not stop to consider whether or not he has created or contributed to the entire debacle. It is a lot easier to demonize other people. And so in verse 33, he focuses on what the people are doing wrong. He says, you have dealt treacherously. In verse 38, with God refusing to answer him, Saul assumes that the problem must be somewhere out there. The problem must be somewhere in the people. And so in a classic move of blaming the victim, he says, come here so I can find out which one of you screwed everything up. He confidently pops off with another foolish vow. He says, even if it's my own son, whoever caused all this is going to die. He consults God's will through this pretty obscure Old Testament method called the Urim and the Thurim. We're not totally sure what this is. Something to do with pouches in a garment that a priest wears. Uh, But in any case, it comes down to him and Jonathan, and then they switch methods to um, casting lots, throwing dice, pulling straws, something like that. And then Jonathan gets pegged. Jonathan admits that that he had eaten the honey, and he says, okay, yeah, sure, I ate a bit of honey. Uh, Go ahead, kill me. Here I am. Saul's self-absorbed confidence has caused great harm. It's contributed to great sin. It's led him to blame everybody but himself. But in the end, you see him being humiliated. It's kind of sad. The people jump up and they say, Whoa, 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 what are you doing? Why in the world would you kill your own son after he's been working with God to bring this great salvation? What are you thinking? Again, this is one of many examples in the Bible of people courageously rebelling against evil rulers. Uh, They rescue Jonathan from his foolish and insecure tyranny. And once again, you have this great contrast between Jonathan, his simple faith in God to save, and Saul, his self-seeking, blame-shifting confidence in himself to save. Verse 46 hints that Saul is something of a dud. His whole God-given purpose, if you remember, his purpose as king was to deliver Israel from the Philistines. But at the end of this whole episode, you just hear this. And this is where we're kind of getting this summary of what's going on. Saul went up from pursuing the Philistines and the Philistines went to their own place. We're just back to the status quo. Philistines are still around. Not much has really happened to them under Saul. In verse 52, you hear that he fights them all his days. He'll eventually be killed by them in battle. In the last couple paragraphs of the chapter, you get some reports about many other military victories that he won, about how large his family was. But the point there, even with these kind of summaries about his life, the point seems to be that underneath the surface of impressive victories and impressive family, Saul is morally and spiritually and vocationally adrift. Saul is very far from the Lord, and so we're starting to see why he can't really be God's king. We saw that Jesus is like Jonathan. Uh, He won victory in spite of his littleness. He was confident in God's salvation, no matter how bad things looked. But now we also see that Jesus is unlike Saul. And we'll end with this. Saul starved the people, but of course Jesus feeds us. Not only uh, in miracles like his feeding of the 5,000, but ultimately with himself. 
Jesus said in John 6, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Jesus ultimately is God's answer to our deepest needs and longings. Saul protected himself at other people's expense. Jesus gave up his interests for the good of others. The Apostle Paul says in Philippians that Jesus did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. He humbled himself by being obedient to the point of death on a cross, the worst way that anyone could have died. And finally, while Saul shifted the blame, he said, you suffer the consequences of what I've done. Jesus takes the blame. He says, I'll suffer the consequences of what you've done. Paul says in Galatians that Christ redeemed us, he saved us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. Jesus never broke any of God's laws. Uh, Jesus never had to confess his sins like we did this morning. Uh, We've broken all kinds of laws, even today. We've already, all of us, sinned against God. And yet Jesus took the consequences for us if we've believed in him so that we wouldn't have to. Jesus was a lot like Jonathan. But praise the Lord, he's a lot unlike Saul. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you uh, for your kingly rule over us, uh, your perfect wisdom and might in protecting us and saving us from all of our greatest enemies. Uh, You lead us uh, into and through danger, always keeping us perfectly safe for the heavenly kingdom that awaits us. Help us to trust in you. Help us to see no matter uh, what impossible odds we might be facing in our own lives, that nothing can hinder you from saving, for you already have saved. And we worship you still. We pray in your name. Amen.